This week's episode of On Comedy Writing is brought to you by Handy. Handy is a website where you can book top-rated home cleaners and handymen who might give you a little happy ending when you're done if you've been a good little boy. You can get friendly, vetted professionals at your doorstep. Just pick a time and we'll do the rest. And maybe a little extra to play your cards right. How does it work? Well, Handy has experienced and background check professionals. They're clean, so you don't have to worry about that, uh, if you know what I mean. They have an online interface with easy payment and rescheduling option. Also, a place for freaking tips, maybe if they go above and beyond what they said they do. You know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about, consumer? You can request your favorite professionals. I know I got a favorite guy I have a good relationship with, and they do everything. Furniture assembly, interior painting, hanging pictures, and hand jobs. So book clear today and get a hand job. by going to boardwalk.com slash handy. That's boardwalk.com slash handy. This is a Boardwalk Audio podcast. On comedy writing, on comedy writing. Thanks for downloading this episode of On Comedy Writing, the podcast about the business and craft of writing comedy. I'm your host, Alan Johnson. We've got a great episode, but first, the best way to support this show is by going to boardwalkwritingcom slash oncomedywriting. Click the supporter artist button, shop on Amazon and Hollywood, you get a little kickback. Our guest this week is Steve Young, who's written for The Simpsons, Maya and Marty, and was a longtime Letterman writer for 25 years, going back from uh, late night to the late show to the very end of uh, Letterman's time on late night. Very cool guy, a lot of interesting stories, kind of outside the purview of comedy, but he's got this documentary called Bathtubs Over Broadway, which both sounds really funny and really interesting and really heartwarming. So we talk about it near the end of the episode, but be on the lookout for that. So here is Steve Young. Uh, Steve, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure, Alan. Uh, where are you from originally? Uh, originally from uh, semi-rural Massachusetts, a town called Pepperell, about an Pepperell. hour, yeah, hour, hour northwest of Boston. Okay, I was I was actually in Boston this week. Oh well, there's a small connection right there. Yeah, <laughs> um, my father uh, commuted in every day and worked at Logan Airport. Oh wow! Fixed airplanes, so that was pretty cool for a kid growing up. My dad fixes airplanes. <laughs> did Did you uh, live there your whole childhood? I was actually born in Connecticut, but uh, my memories begin around the time that I think I was three and we moved to the house where I grew up for, uh, I don't know, 18 years or so. Mm -hmm. And then uh, came to New York in the late 80s and I've lived here ever since. Were, Were you interested in comedy at a young age? Weirdly, or maybe not weirdly, I don't know what you're seeing as a pattern here. Not really. Uh, I was never a comedy nerd. I didn't have any stand-up comedy albums or think about uh, Steve Martin or Richard Pryor or anything. None of that was on my radar screen. Yeah, I watched a few sitcoms and thought, oh, that's fun. But it did not occur to me during my uh, youth that comedy was a potential career I, I just never thought about where tv shows come from or where comedy comes from it was it was not until i was uh, at college i got on the harvard lampoon and that was the sort of uh, opening of my eyes oh so people grow up and get jobs writing or even performing comedy and that's what they do well that's fascinating Conan O'Brien was the president of the magazine when I got on there. So that was a very inspiring figure. Wow, look at this guy. He's hilarious. Wow, I want to be more like him. 
What, what was uh, what was he like in college? Very much. Uh, he looked about the same as he does <laughs> now. I think that kind of sort of solidified by not too long into his college career, and he sounded and he just felt like that guy, and it was interesting. I think that was the first time I ever in person realized that some people have some extra factor, some mysterious mm. X factor of comedy that is hard to pin down. But when he would come into the room, things were just immediately hilarious. And if you wrote down everything he said on paper, you would say, well, I guess that's kind of funny. But him being there and talking and just being his personality was the the mysterious uh, fairy dust that made it all really, really something. That's interesting because, you know, you think of Conan. He was a, he was like a writer who is not really supposed to be like on camera talent at all. So it's interesting to think that he, even as someone who necessarily wasn't trying to be an actor or trying to be on camera stuff, had that magnetism still. Well, I like to think that uh, people who are not initially grooming themselves for performing may yet end up there and that right. may be a little self-interest on my part but uh, obviously there are people who come out of the gate at a very early age clearly destined for performing but uh, he as far as I know was dabbling in it pretty early after college I think out in LA he was with the groundlings and got comfortable being in front of audiences which is obviously hugely important and plenty of hilarious people never get that i know plenty of people who are never going to be comfortable with anything other than being in the writer's room or even in a a small room by themselves writing hilarious things so it's a huge spectrum of uh, how comedy comes out through you whether it's all just on paper or whether it is you in person there is a big range there and so you mentioned that you weren't really interested in comedy too much. How did you, what made you get involved with the Harvard Lampoon? Well, I guess I did have some stirrings toward it. Uh, I remember my parents one year gave me a, a little set of Woody Allen paperback books. Mm. And he had written various stories and essays and humorous bits and pieces that had all been collected, these print pieces. I don't think I'd ever seen a Woody Allen movie at that point. But somehow they thought, oh, Stevie will think this is interesting. And I remember reading through those things and just looking at jokes and marveling at how they worked and how can you go from this part of the sentence down to this part of the sentence and something has flipped upside down or yanked the rug out from under you and it is wrong, but it is, it's brilliantly right. And, and that's when I guess I started thinking... There's something to this, and maybe I have some some vestige of talent for it. Because I can remember being the kid in class as early as like first or second grade who would say things that would get big laughs in the class. And so I was thinking, all right, so you have some beginning of a, an inclination to do this, but there are, in the same way as music, and I often make this analogy between music and comedy, you don't have to know music theory to be a very musical person. Mm. But once you learn some and you realize, what is that sound I've been hearing all my life when it goes <laughs> from this to this while this th thing's happening underneath it? Oh, that's a diminished chord. And now I know what it is and how it works. That can be very gratifying. So I think at some point I started realizing, oh, so 
jokes actually kind of work on principles and maybe you can learn them so well that then you can do even better by breaking the principles and twisting the principles but it is something to be aware of probably if you want to really pursue this that there are certain things that are gonna be good to know and did you kind of um self-analyze that or was that something you kept learning as you kept going Uh, i don't know if i ever got so far as to have a, a course of study i don't think i ever bought a book about how to be funny or how to write a joke although there's apparently plenty of those books out there and maybe are very useful to some people i think for me it was just a very long years and now decades long process of being immersed in it and being around other funny people like at the harvard lampoon and then later the letterman show just being thrown into that swimming pool every day and having to swim your way through it with your own uh wit and uh, agility and uh, quickness and everything mm-hmm. it just is a uh, I probably rely on too many metaphors but you have a a blade it's probably not very sharp when you're born like when you buy a new jackknife they're not going to sharpen it up to an obsidian like uh edge but but if you spend years sharpening it and sharpening it and sharpening it every day just by going out and talking to people and working it and enjoying it then if you have some talent it will get sharp Mm. and so what was the harvard lampoon like when you when you got there as a as a freshman well first of all why do you assume i was there as a freshman i actually wasn't it was a a a whole year before i got around to really investigating Uh and in a way that was good because i had a separate little year of college to just try to get my bearings uh it was a pretty far cry from high school, and I needed to acclimate to, oh, I, I think I'm not the smartest person here anymore. <laughs> so I have to actually try to pay attention and figure out what I'm doing. But uh, getting on the Lampoon, it is a magazine as well as a sort of organization. And some people call it a, a semi-secret social club that occasionally puts out a magazine. And there's... <laughs> Some truth to that, although I think I was with people who really did want to do a, a good job on the magazine, and a great many of the people from my era have gone on to work in comedy professionally. But it was a great place to hang out every day, and as I, as I was saying, just going and being around these people who are all just sharpening their wits against each other day in and day out, and year in and year out, uh, and good people, people you actually want to hang out with, hugely helpful there's i think a stereotype that comedy writers are sort of bitter and antisocial and terribly neurotic and maybe even uh deeply disturbed unpleasant people and i'm I'm sure there's some truth to that but i was hanging out with uh, people who were seeming to me pretty pretty decent and well adjusted so it was not just this uh race to slash each other it wasn't I have to win so you can lose it was for the most part a much more congenial atmosphere and that's been true of very nearly every place I've ever worked in the in the comedy business Mm -hmm. so 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 much for the bitter horrible comedy writer (laughs) stereotype not true (laughs) is is it weird that you wrote like the stuff that you wrote in college because it's like under this Harvard Lampoon this like very famous thing is it weird that that's held to like a higher Maybe it's like it's visited more and held to like a higher standard than like other places, like other things that people do in college. 
Well, I don't know if anybody outside the microclimate of Harvard ever yeah. actually reads the Harvard. Yeah, that's true. Actually, that's uh, interesting. Uh, well, I think they've updated in recent decades, and there's a website now, and they've probably put themselves out further into the world, just because everything can be easily out in the world mm-hmm. through the internet. Uh, there was decent stuff being done there, and we did some high-profile projects in the summers. That was often the case that uh, we would try to do something that would get national attention and maybe make the magazine some money. I worked on a parody of USA Today, right mm-hmm. when USA Today had sort of established itself in the mid-'80s as well. I guess it's this thing that's everywhere and everyone knows now. That's how you know you've arrived. This one, that's a... A publication you're being parodied right. by the Harvard Lampoon. So that was a lot of fun. And that got us some pretty good attention. Uh, I think there's the perception um some people just anything to do with Harvard, they're ready to hate. Right. Because, oh, these privileged assholes. Look <laughs> at them go. They think they run the world. By the time I was at Harvard, I think two-thirds of the student body were from public high schools. And uh, roughly that proportion also on some sort of financial aid. The the Lampoon would have parties where you'd wear tuxedos and, and uh, carouse and all that. And we were all play acting at what we thought rich people were like 100 <laughs> years ago. The, these are mostly solidly middle class uh, young men and women who had scratched their way into Harvard. And when I was trying to get in there, it was, I think it was considerably easier. I think the applicant pool has quadrupled and quadrupled again and if you don't already have a nobel prize at age 18 you're probably not getting into harvard (laughs) so there's some prejudice against harvard i think but it's kind of this known quantity i think in certain comedy circles Mm -hmm. just because so many people like conan various snl people and seinfeld and blah 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 so many people have come through uh, the lampoon and gone on to success out there so it doesn't get you a job it might get your submission looked at by mm-hmm. somebody sympathetic but it's not going to get you a job you mm-hmm. don't deserve and uh you you became an editor is that right yeah well everybody was called an editor. oh really yeah uh, there was a i don't know if you could be anything lower than an editor frankly <laughs> So yes, I was an editor and proud of it. <laughs> well, did you have any sort of like uh, responsibility, extra responsibilities than just being a, a writer? Uh, yeah. Uh, one year when it was election time, uh, I ended up with a position called Sanctum, which sounds very cryptic and mysterious. <laughs> oh, must be some sort of skull and bones society skullduggery. <laughs> no, it was basically just making sure the building was not uh, collapsing (laughs) so i'd call in electricians when we would have problems and call in people to do maintenance things and did a lot of just general cleaning and maintenance myself Uh, once i was up on a ladder in the great hall and i don't think i'm telling too much out of turn here to say that there's a, a large room called the great hall and has chandeliers that have actual you put candles in them they're not electrified so you'd have to get up on uh chandeliers and on the ladder and put the candles in the chandeliers and then after the big party you'd get up there and maybe take down the candle stubs or the blobs of melted wax or whatever one time i was up there i guess it was a while after a party and i thought oh look at that that discolored blob of wax oh how did that get some (laughs) oh that's not wax 
that's a piece of fried chicken that is <laughs> lodged oh, wow. in the chandelier a month ago. <laughs> We're going to take that down now and dispose of that properly. So, yes, as I say, fun to play act at being a rich hedonistic uh, Jay Gatsby's in an era when that was already seeming like a, a very distant, vanished time. <laughs> What's your, your favorite Lampoon piece? Uh, well, I, I turned in a couple that, uh, just because I wasn't overthinking it yet. Uh, the very first things I ever turned in, there was, or maybe it's only because these are the ones I can remember now. <laughs> there was one about, uh, somebody who was ghostwriting the Beatles songs and the Beatles would come in with these <laughs> extremely tortured first drafts like you know the song is i want to hold your hand but they would come in with this thing that i desire to clutch the (laughs) the area of your arm past your wrist and the guy would say i think there's something there if we can just (laughs) simplify it and so i ran with that premise probably a little more uh than i should have but uh, it was fun and people seemed to like that and uh I'm sure if I looked back at these things now, I would roll my eyes at my uh, <laughs> sort of green naivete and so on. But it, anybody's got to get past their their first attempts and hopefully get a little encouragement and a little fun out of it so you keep going. So you, you graduate Harvard. Uh, what's your next move after that? Well, I'm not sure you could call it a move. Uh, I stayed around <laughs> Boston for a couple of years trying to figure out how to get a writing career going. I wrote some freelance humor pieces for a few different magazines. Uh, I was a bartender. By this time, I was living with my uh, future wife, who had a, 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 a good, solid, real job going in the magazine industry. So I uh, moved in with her and was the sort of... Uh, well, he's got artistic prospects of some sort. We don't really know what yet. Let's not ask too many uh, deep, penetrating questions. Well, he's got uh, some sort of wild look in his eyes and say, says he's interested in comedy. We'll see what happens. It shouldn't really have worked out, actually. Uh, well, it's funny, too, because you think of that. Sometimes you think of it as like an artist, right? Like a mm-hmm. painter or something. And that seems much cooler than, oh, he's a comedy writer. He's yeah. trying to figure something out. Well, in our... Uh, engagement announcement that was in a newspaper I, I i said i'm gonna put down he is a comedy writer i said i'm gonna put it out there guess what world get used to it because that's what i'm putting down in the newspaper and luckily i was able to eventually pay that off um uh, took a while though it was a couple of years out from college before i had my first uh writing job i did have an agent somebody came to the harvard lampoon and said, oh, the William Morris Agency is uh, very interested in finding promising young writers. And I said, William Morris? Why does the cigarette company want to come talk to... <laughs> no, so I have no idea what was going on. But So I wrote a Cheers spec script. That, oh, That wow. doesn't date me at all. <laughs> uh, and uh, the guy said, oh, yeah, okay, that seems fine for a starting out kind of person. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, well, do you remember what your Cheers episode was? Oh, uh, well, of course. It's not something that ever got near the actual real TV show. Uh, yeah, I think I've largely blocked that out. <laughs> Just the, the, the mental image of something coming out of a early Macintosh pin feed printer <laughs> with that dot matrix. Uh, it just has an air of, well, 
That's how we all had to live in 1987. <laughs> it just seems just seems awful now. So uh, the first job I got was partly in due to that agent who, I guess, had nothing better to do one day and put my name out somewhere. And then I was tried out at not necessarily the news mm. in California. And uh, I did not really want to move to California. I stayed on a friend's sofa for several weeks. He very kindly, another Harvard Lampoon guy, uh, getting his bearings out in L.A. So a sympathetic friend let me stay out there. And it was interesting, my first paid job. And uh, I got one or two things on an, an episode and then they said, "Oh, you know, we've uh, the budget kind of didn't work out. Uh, last hired, first fired, sort of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, best of luck to you, but it's time to go." So, mm -hmm. uh, so I had to go. But that, uh, for some reason, the one episode that my material was in, let's say it's not a coincidence, was put up for a Writers Guild Award and won. So uh, out of the oh. gate, there I suddenly got this plaque, and I think, "What did I do?" I don't know. <laughs> but uh, it's interesting being out there in these offices in L.A. because Conan and uh, his uh, his sometimes partner Greg Daniels had been writers on that show a year or two before me, and I would find all these little Conan cartoons in desk drawers. And oh wow! I thought, oh yeah, yeah, I'm stalking you, Mister. Wherever you go, I'll go. And it didn't quite turn out to be true, but <laughs> felt like something was. Uh, if he's making it, I'm gonna try to make it too. <laughs> and so, um, eventually, uh, how much further was it till you got to Letterman? There was another intermediate step in uh, the fall of '89 in New York. They were starting up the Comedy Channel, which was this. Uh, oh yeah. I think it was under the auspices of HBO. And by this point, I had a few connections and some decent writing samples. And someone said, oh, you ought to talk to my friend over there. And I did. And I had some things to turn in. And and uh, somebody said, okay, yeah, let's bring him in. So I was working on this show, this uh, performer named Rachel Sweet. And it was called The Sweet Life. There was this whole uh, slew of little shows that were built around performers uh, who did little interstitial things between movie clips. I don't remember. I don't know if you know the early days of this channel or if you remember or have ever seen it, but what they were doing for most of their programming was they had an access to some library of comedy movies and somebody had gone through them and cut out three minutes here, four minutes there, just <laughs> made these little standalone scenes, which... I suspect did not play as well out of context right. as they had in their original 90-minute uh, surroundings. But this was how it was done. It was like it, maybe an early version of uh, what the mortgage packagers were doing uh, 15 years later. So <laughs> let's just slice things up, bundle them, and put them out the door and tell people that it's an investment. So you wrote little 30 second or one minute bits for these various performers. And I met some very good people there. Uh, uh, they had, uh, Higgins boys and Gruber and Steve oh. Higgins is now the, the guy with the tonight show and SNL. Uh, let's see. Rich Hall was around occasionally a guy named Alan Havey. Very funny. Uh, Rachel sweet was very talented and musical. And so there were good people cycling through there. It's just, they hadn't, quite really figured out what it should be mm -hmm. also we were in manhattan but we were not on the air in manhattan so you'd tell all your friends yeah i'm working yeah. for the comedy channel and they'd say what channel is that and i'd say i think you're gonna have to move to houston to see it <laughs> and there was the other thing across town called ha 
which is the rival cable comedy oh. channel. And so we were all looking side-eyed, oh, ha, oh, what's going on with ha? And then eventually the two of them merged, and then the modern world just knows it as uh, Comedy Central, right. which is what it came out to be. But uh, after about six months there, the word on the street was, oh, a bunch of writers have just left the Letterman show. Now's a good time to put in your packet, see what you can do there. So I did that, and... Uh, I was in the right place at the right time with the right sample material and the head writer Steve O'Donnell, a dear friend of mine to this day, saw some potential there that he thought could be molded with a firm application <laughs> of, a, of an iron fist or I don't know what, but he said, okay, yeah, let's come up and have Steve Young come up and talk to us. And suddenly uh, I'm going to the big leagues, spring of 1990. Do you uh, remember what your packet was like? I remember very little of it, and I bet, I wonder if I saved it, because sometimes years later you'd find a a stash of writing submissions in a file cabinet drawer. I know I found my one from 1987 that had not impressed them, (laughs) the whole pin feed printer thing again. I think that probably was no help, but uh, yeah, you know, you did some top ten lists and some ideas for live bits and whatever, and maybe I sent in some things from the comedy channel and not necessarily the news. And I really don't remember, but, uh, and I'm sure even now I would look at my sample that got me the job and say, I would probably go, Ooh, I don't know about this kid. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe give him 10 years and see if he, uh, firms up. But yeah, we were given the opportunity to kind of find our way for a while and, uh, get our bearings and our sea legs and all that. And Steve O'Donnell, a great, friend and mentor really uh, seemed to see something in me that he thought was worth working with. So I'm always grateful for that. And for Dave Letterman also, who uh, seemed to uh, look upon me kindly. And uh, and uh, I ended up uh, over the years feeling like he... Uh, I, I was very happy anytime I did something that he really liked because you felt like, all right, that's what you want out of life as a comedy writer, to, <laughs> to make that man laugh. In in general, how do you approach writing a packet? Some shows give you very specific guidelines. Mm-hmm. I don't remember if at the time, nearly 30 years ago, whether the Letterman show had very specific guidelines. I know at the time the Letterman show was somewhat unusual. They did not require you to have an agent in order to submit. And I think that was a vestige of... The, the the ethos of the, the show from the early days had been these people working here don't really belong in television. These are the weirdos and misfits that conventional entertainment can't make sense of. And so we were always, uh, as a show, looking for people coming in from left field, from some other profession, just like we are looking for the most hilarious uh, tile grouter in America <laughs> who is working on this... Uh, uh, craft of uh, whatever grouting bathroom tile, but also thinking of the most hilarious things that don't currently have an outlet in his job or her job. And so there we'd, we, we got a lot of people who came in from weird points of the compass, uh, many high achieving professionals who gave up careers in computer science, law, uh, academia, some people who uh, just uh, ha- had worked in magazines or whatever a lot of people coming into the letterman show in those years who were not television writers per se but 
could bring something to the table that this kind of television could use. Do you think, because I, I, as far as I know, that doesn't happen anymore anywhere. So do you think do you think television kind of maybe suffers from having one perspective maybe? Yeah, well, I think the modern version of that is all uh, YouTube and Twitter and so on. Suppose, you, you do hear yeah. the story about the hilarious person on Twitter who never thought they were going to be a TV writer, but their account gets a lot of followers, and then influential people say, wow, this person's hilarious. We ought to bring him out to California and have him work on our show. So there are those golden stories where mm-hmm. where that just happens. And I think a lot of people now say, all right, I'm going to write packets, and I'm going to try to get an agent, but I'm also going to start a YouTube channel, and me and my buddies are just mm-hmm. going to do stuff and not wait. And I do think that's important to not wait to be hired to do something, not wait to be told to do something. I'm trying to do more of that even now in my post-letterman life with people I enjoy working with. Let's let's uh, let's write this song and do this music video and just just put it out just because because we like to do it and we think it's good. And uh, let's let's write these little short bits and shoot them and edit them professionally and we'll just start our own little franchise of whatever comedy things we want to do. Mm-hmm. So I do think that is the version of that that happens in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. And when you when you joined Letterman, it was uh, an established show, show already. What was it like being kind of a fairly green writer joining that room? There were a few newish writers in that era because there had been like four or five writers who had all left, I think, in the wake of the eighth anniversary show, which had been in L.A., and then writers were secretly going to meetings, and then suddenly <laughs> the three weeks or five weeks after the anniversary show, every Friday apparently some writer would announce that he was leaving to go work on whatever in California. Yeah. And it was just this drain out of the... The, the classic show of the 80s was having this sort of sea change. So there were uh, still plenty of veterans left, but there was a feeling like, okay, apparently it's a new era. And uh, it really did feel like I had arrived after some golden age. There was still plenty of fun stuff being done in the early 90s on the NBC show, but it didn't, I think, feel quite like the anarchy that uh, had been in the mid-80s, I think, by then. Uh, the show had sort of set into certain patterns and expectations, and it was harder to just do something completely off the grid, although there were certainly times like that. But I was just excited to be there. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you like the, the late-night schedule? that you like In general, like, you, know, you worked there for 25 years. Did yeah. you like having that very kind of intense schedule? I... I guess I did. I found that I took pretty well to getting in at a regular time every day and knowing, all right, uh, we're going to work on this for two hours and we're going to work on that and then we're going to have pitching uh, about this and that and then we're going to write these and those. So the rhythms of it you got used to. Uh, In the later years, in the final few years at CBS, uh, it was quite quite a busy day. The technology had improved so much that we could put together eight videotape pieces in a day. In the early 90s at NBC, we could do maybe one a week. But now we could just put this uh, profusion of prepared, written, produced comedy bits together and show Dave a pile of tapes or whatever the technology turned out to be. And he, he would look at a batch of things and pick the ones he wanted. And so you were... 
pro producing material at a, a, a very fast pace and a frenzied pace, also writing the top 10 list. I was running the monologue for the last 11 years of the show, so that was part of my day. It, it has been an adjustment post-Letterman to realize, uh, not all the time, but some of the time, I have to figure out how to structure my time and, mm -hmm. all right, what do I want to work on and am I really going to get this done or am I going to get distracted and... So it's a. I think if you, if you start at age twenty three or whatever, being this self directed person, well, I admire that if you can actually hold that down and say, here's what I'm going to accomplish today, and just get in the habit of that. And uh, I'm, I've gotten so I'm pretty good at that. But I definitely do well when there's a deadline and something is expected of me by someone at a certain time. And so, very famously, there was the late night wars. Uh, with Letterman at NBC not getting the Tonight Show. Right. What was that like from your perspective? Uh, I guess in in the moment, I was not uh, in any inner circle of the show where the, the, the nitty-gritty details were being discussed and strategies and secrets were being whispered and so on. So I was seeing this pretty much as anybody who would read the New York Daily News at the time. Like... Uh, we knew at one point, all right, Jay Leno's going to have The Tonight Show. Dave is going to do something. Okay, Dave's moving to CBS. I don't think I had any special advanced knowledge of that. But then there was the day the New York Post put on the front page that Dave was taking the show to Los Angeles. Dave dumps New York. Yeah. The New York Post on their front page said uh, the, the in, uh, sources have confirmed that Dave Letterman is moving his show to Los Angeles. <laughs> I was walking to work and I saw this newspaper on the newsstands and my my wife was like four or five months pregnant and uh, we, 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 what, what? And I got to work and everyone's in a panic and then there's a denial from the show and uproar and no, no, it was not true. We did not move to Los <laughs> Angeles, but that was just anything could happen. It felt mm -hmm. like stuff was, uh, this great era of change was in the air and how it would shake out, we didn't know, but uh so we stay in New York, and he's on CBS, and it's a great, uh, uh, a great success for a while. And then, the, and then the initial period ends, and then there's the mid '90s, and Jay is on the rise, and everyone's wondering, oh, what? And just these geological eras of up and down, <laughs> and up and down, and it just seems unbelievable now. Mm -hmm. In the early '90s, on a on a bad day, we'd be shaking our heads, saying, oh, I don't know how much. How much longer this show can go? I mean, just everything seems wow. so difficult now. And it went for 25 <laughs> years more. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it, it, people don't really think about how, like, like when Conan had to move to L.A. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, like, the show, I guess, what was, like, six more months or eight months, nine months? Uh, that's, like, horrible for those writers who had to all move from New York. Writers, producers, uh talent coordinators researchers it's a very large group of people yeah. that puts a show like that on and uh some of them probably were happy to move to la with conan because probably many of them thought well it's inevitable the center of gravity for this kind of show is out there although i think it has switched back i mean we've seen the tonight show come back to new york mm -hmm. uh a lot of your other Colbert and Samantha B and Trevor Noah. There is uh, more in New York, maybe than people twenty years ago might have uh, imagined. So I'm mm -hmm. I'm always glad to see New York uh, 
grab a good solid uh, piece of the pie on that department. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know how it would have worked out if I'd had to move to L.A. I guess we would have done it. Because, <laughs> uh, I mean, this show, for me, was the right place to be. And not every day for 25 years, but on the whole, it was definitely the right place for me to be. And I don't regret that I... Uh, by the time I got out, it was more than half my life that I'd worked for Dave. And I uh, don't think I'll ever come to regret that. It would have been quite a wrenching experience. Maybe great things that have happened to me since wouldn't have happened. Maybe other wonderful things would have happened. So can't agonize that uh, about that. But I did write a Simpsons episode in 1996. And that was a fun experience. I knew some of the people out there with the Simpsons from college and uh and when that uh, episode was written and in the pipeline and everyone seemed pleased with it they said hey if you want to come out and move to LA we'd love to have you on the staff and I said ooh that is tempting that is about as most temptation as I think LA could ever dangle mm-hmm. in front of me but I at that point I had uh I had a like two-year-old three-year-old daughter and just my family's from the Northeast. My wife's family's from the Northeast. And the Letterman show, no sign that that was about to go belly up. So I said, mm-hmm. yeah, it's tempting, but no, I think I'm going to stay. And it didn't. <laughs> no, we uh, we played that one right. Uh, had another nearly 20 years to go on that. Although who would have guessed the Simpsons would, uh, would outlast Letterman and it'd be by like 20 years. Yeah, well, that's a wonderful franchise, i got to say. <laughs> that uh, A lot of terrific work's been done out there by wonderful people. How did the Simpsons episode come about? I think by the mid-90s, I was wondering, should I be doing other things? I mean, I love The Letterman Show. I think I'm going to stay here, but should like for my long-term career, should I have other stuff going on? And my agent said, yeah, maybe. Uh, well, let's see if we... Uh, you're friends with people at The Simpsons, right? See what you can do over there. I, I don't know if, uh, to what extent my agent at the time was a good guy. I don't know what he had to do with setting that up or whether it was all uh, most things that you do I think in this business ultimately are due to and thanks to connections and you know somebody and you've worked with someone before and they recommend someone else and that's how most of it happens but uh, definitely the personal connections to people at the Simpsons were very helpful and at the time they I think had two episodes per season that were designated as freelancer episodes I don't think they do that anymore and even then, it wasn't purely, uh, oh, Steve Young's coming in. I wonder what his ideas are going to be. No, I got there. They already knew what the premise of the episode was going to be. George Meyer, their, one of their resident uh, geniuses, had the idea for the hurricane is coming to Springfield, and it's going to uh, seem very scary, but the only damage it's going to do is destroy the Flanders house. That's what they had, like this five-sentence description. And that really is only even the first half of the show, if you've ever seen that episode. Mm -hmm. But they had a strong beginning there. And by this time, the show is very well established. All the the characters are well-known. You're not trying to invent... Uh, who's should there be a storekeeper? No, we got everybody. We got everybody lined up. I'm sure there'll be new characters, but very well established and well run show by that point. So it was fun to sit in the writers' room for a couple of days. Everybody pitched ideas for what the story should turn out like and what twists and turns it should have. Everyone 
pitching jokes and jokes on jokes and variations and uh, the, the ideas were flying at a very high rate. They had a uh, an assistant, a writer's assistant, I guess, who just tried to, like a court reporter, try to get down everything that was flying by. And I got this enormous document with two days worth of just high speed uh, improvisation. And I wrote uh, an outline. I was told, make what sense of it you can. Write an outline of what you think uh, seems to be the way forward and put in whatever jokes you want to at this point. Certainly add as many new jokes as you want to. So I did that. I got some notes uh, from George Meyer, who's, uh, since he'd had the idea, and a senior person kind of shepherded it along. And then I went back and wrote a first draft and based on his comments and put in some more jokes of my own. And my job ended when I turned in the first draft. And then they kept polishing and rewriting, and they'd get bits of animation back from south korea or whatever it was and see how it looked and realize whatever they could add to fill in more detail or whatever so these pipelines for this show have many episodes at once going through mm -hmm. different stages of completion so i think i wrote that in the winter spring of 96 and it aired in december of 96 mm -hmm. and it's a good episode i show it to my class in my nyu <laughs> tv history class it's an incredible story that like makes so much sense for for Flanders to do, like where he questions his religion through that. It's almost surprising they, they like so they gave that to a freelancer because you think that's like a very important episode for them. Yeah, I guess they were at the point in the show's history where we've established all the characters well enough that we can now say, "How did someone get to be like that?" And right. we have enough depth of feeling and knowledge of this character that you could coherently reverse engineer them in a fun way mm -hmm. so i don't know how many other ones were like that but yeah it was it was cool to uh, everybody knows flanders everyone laughs yeah. at flanders one-dimensional flanders oh wait a minute there's a whole uh every human being's got some uh some amazing backstory like that and people think of the simpsons as a, a joke machine and it, and it really is it's it's incredible jokes but it also has like very good emotional depths uh, and this episode highlights both of that. How do you how do you balance that the emotional depth with the jokes? Well, I don't know if you have to make a plan for that, or whether a good show with good writers will reach some version right, of that equilibrium. Yeah. I know that uh, I think some pretty good brains have written for that show over the years to the point where there have been papers written about. Uh, what does The Simpsons as a show say about religion? And somebody will take 15 different episodes and try to find some coherent pattern of, is there a worldview behind this that actually is coherent? And I, I, I think there, I don't remember what conclusions anyone might have drawn, but yeah, between religion and math and science and history, there's a, there's a lot going on in these shows. And, and eight-year-olds love to watch The Simpsons and it's all flying past them. They don't know it. What uh, references to the Nixon administration mean? Okay. But uh, it it is very satisfying when you think, all right, somebody is not holding back. Somebody is saying, you know what? I trust you to get this and follow this. Mm -hmm. What's your favorite joke from that episode? Uh, well, there are many jokes that were not mine because it was a highly collaborative process, and people should understand that. Anytime you see a TV show that says written by, in reality, yes, that writer probably did a lot, 
but your favorite jokes from that episode might not be by that writer. But I do recall fondly, uh, I added the detail, when the Simpson family goes to visit Ned Flanders at the insane asylum, uh, they go into the reception area, and uh, before they're allowed to walk off down the hall, they all have to put on stickers that say, Sane. <laughs> That's those are always like the the best jokes I think. Or just kind of like a dumb like yeah. It's thing. just cheerfully. Well, what more could you need? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so going back to Letterman, so uh, he goes from CB. You go from NBC to CBS. Mm-hmm. Do you think things would have been the show would have been different if he had the Tonight Show than what it eventually became? Uh, I'm sure it would have. Uh, Certainly The Tonight Show uh, with Johnny, uh, this great legacy that Dave revered. Uh, Dave and Johnny had a wonderful uh, sort of simpatico relationship. And uh, I'm sure Dave would have uh, exerted himself to feel like he's got to live up to Johnny. He's got to do stuff Johnny would have liked. What form that would have taken, I I don't know. But uh, I'm sure Dave's natural... uh, his style and interest and so on would have come through eventually in in some recognizable form wherever he would be. And so uh, you go from NBC to CBS. Were there any like major changes? I guess there had to be because NBC had like some copyrights. That seemed a little fuzzy. We still yeah. did a top ten right? list. <laughs> and I guess uh, nobody had the heart over at NBC to, to drag <laughs> us into court about that. But... Just because Conan seems like he couldn't do most of the stuff. Uh-huh. And he, he never tried, I guess. But Yeah, uh, I don't know whether uh, the the legal department was more active by then. I don't know. Yeah. But I do recall uh, NBC, you had this ca- uh, character named Larry Bud Melman. <laughs> and that was not his real name. <laughs> and when we all went over to CBS, we still had the actor. But now we called him by his actual name, which was Calvert uh-huh. Calvert DeForest. So we couldn't say Larry Bud Melman anymore. That's the only specific concession I recall to that sort of. It, didn't the, it went from like. Uh, it wasn't actually with a top 10 list, like it was like a top 10 list or something, and then the top 10 list? Yeah, maybe. That, like that, that sounds like some faint attempt at a legal fig leaf, <laughs> but it, it did not seem like very much. It was all very much better produced. Like the graphics mm. were a, a big step up. It used to be very bare bones, just here's a blue screen and white text prints out. Now we had like the big swirling animated opening and, and glowing twirling things everywhere. So. Uh, trying to be more uh, all right, worthy of the eleven thirty time slot mm-hmm. with the production value. But you'd say it was just like a production value stuff mostly. I think there was some thought given to eleven thirty audiences are probably right. different than twelve thirty audiences, and we've got to cast the net a little wider. We don't want to lose the uh, the style and the ethos of the show that had made it so successful for mm-hmm. so many years, but we also don't want to be so quirky and obtuse and enigmatic that middle America is going to shrug and turn it off. So, I mean, that was a balancing act. I was not really in those strategy sessions, but I think some version of them took place. And on the whole, when you say, well, I guess we were on for 22 years there, uh, eventually things found their equilibrium. Uh, How do you approach like writing a monologue joke? Well... You're probably starting with something topical in the news mm-hmm. and 
you just make a list of, okay, politician X said that, politician Y said that, the sports team this, movie opening this weekend about that. You just like put down a list of premises. I would just write the sort of straight line setup and mm-hmm. look at it and see what what occurred to me to be the, mm. the punchline. And sometimes it is pure inspiration and something pops into your head that you thought, how did I think of that? But quite often it's, okay, well, we got to mechanically or mathematically uh, get to something that will work. And you know after a while, uh, intuitively or even specifically, all right, here's the kinds of formulas and patterns that work. And so you can you can construct things. You hope that on a good day you're going to actually have these uh, meteorites of inspiration hitting you and and lighting up the page, but don't count on it. <laughs> Did Was there certain jokes that you like wrote that you thought wouldn't work necessarily for Letterman? Um, I'm sure that the vast majority that I wrote that he didn't pick <laughs> fell into that category. Uh, but after a while, and by the time I was doing anything with the monologue, I'd been there for uh, more than 10 years, I think. Mm-hmm. And you sort of knew where the big overlap was, hopefully, mm-hmm. between your sensibility and Dave. And you, Venn diagrams, we're not two circles on top of each other. He'll like something over on this side of the overlap, and I'd like something else over in that... But if you get this chunk in the middle, it overlaps. Right. You you can point yourself toward that. And sometimes it's purely silly and it'll strike him in the right way on the right day and he'll just think it's great. Or sometimes it's uh, uh, surprisingly clever. I mean, there's lots of different ways that a, a joke can work and mm-hmm. appeal to someone. What are the hallmarks of like a good ten, top ten list? The writers often liked the ones that were not super topical. Mm. We liked the sillier ones, like, uh, and those were still happening more in the NBC days. Like, I, I always remember the uh, the top ten topic that sort of represents that for me was Keebler Elf euphemisms for death, <laughs> and that's just well, I don't think that's out of any news story I've ever heard of. But no, it's just an imaginative take on this pop cultural reference everyone gets, but then this weird, dark twist on it. So, uh, And we had fun with that. There were things like, on the cooling rack. <laughs> and I'm just like, yeah, that's, that's what we should be writing. That's good. We should just do stuff like that. And then in the later years, uh, most of these shows seem to have their stock in trade in topical mm-hmm. material. So it was uh, reasons George W. Bush uh, uh, didn't have a good time throwing out the first pitch at the baseball game with uh, Lloyd Benson. I don't know, just to <laughs> take a... You'd still hope you'd get a good imaginative twist on uh, something in the news, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, you could still write perfectly good jokes, but uh, mm-hmm. you had these long geological eras of, okay, it's Dan Quayle jokes, and then it's <laughs> then it's uh, Bill Clinton jokes, and then it's uh, George W. Bush jokes, and mm-hmm. so on and so on, and Chris Christie is fat, and Donald Trump's hair, mm-hmm. and blah, blah, blah. A lot of that did get on, and Dave wanted to make sure that he was not going over the heads of the, of the audience, and so he's the one standing out there and mm-hmm. getting the 
the thumbs up or thumbs down or the laughs or the not laughs. So he's got to do what he's got to do. But uh, like I said, we all cast a fond eye backwards to the days of Keebler elf euphemisms mm-hmm. for death. Well, now at late night is like all topical pretty much. Uh, quite a lot of it is. I think Conan may be in the vanguard of yeah. still trying to do just inspired, weird stuff that doesn't fit in a lot of the rest of the shows. But they do my limited exposure to these uh, current shows, and I'm not really watching them on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. But it does seem like they they fit into certain quadrants of the compass mm-hmm. now. And did you find that trend uh, happening even at Letterman as you kept going? I think so. I I mean, by the late 90s, maybe, Jon Stewart was pretty well established. Mm -hmm. And he had a very particular voice and attitude and political leanings and all that. And I think it made people say, oh, well, I guess this is what these shows should be like now. And Mm -hmm. you, my favorite way to do political stuff or current event stuff was always to take the, the premise that everyone knows about, but find the twist on it or the or uh, the way to go that no other show is going to ever mm-hmm. find because we're our own flavor. So mm-hmm. on a good day, we could do that and find our own unique spin on something that uh, Jon Stewart wasn't going to do. So mm-hmm. we could, we could uh, justify our existence pretty well, even on the topical comedy front most days, I think. How do you think uh, a Letterman show would be like today with, with Donald Trump and... Kind of the new focus on very political humor. It would be interesting, and that comes up occasionally. Mm-hmm. I don't know that Dave would want to do that. I mean, he's doing a show now, the Netflix right. show, and he's not really doing quote-unquote comedy. He wants to talk to fascinating, smart people, and he does a great job with that. And he doesn't need to prove anything to anyone on the comedy front anymore. And it is, I think, hard to say, all right, we're going to come out with guns blazing, making fun of Donald Trump, because it becomes this echo chamber. And, and I do not think that Trump supporters are saying, you know, let's give Jon Stewart a, a listen. He, he might have some things about Trump we haven't thought. You know, right. I think I'm going to have to reconsider my support for this Donald Trump. And some of this stuff is pretty stinging critiques of the guy and his policies. I don't think that happens. Mm-hmm. So... Assuming that's true, you're mostly just what they call uh, uh, preaching to the choir or whatever. And uh, I'm sure there's great, clever stuff being done. And I do think it's important to keep up that pressure on whatever platform you have. If if you think we, we've got to we've got to call out the outrages. But my my own brand of comedy was much more the sweetly strangely absurd stuff that was probably not deeply political so mm-hmm. i i could write a, a joke or a bit about whatever political thing was in the news but it wasn't really why i thought at age 20 or whatever that man i would like to be a comedy writer right it, it is strange that comedy writers are now forced to just like not only like intensely keep up with the news and then directly focus all their energies on like Donald Trump mm-hmm. and like it's very strange it's not like fun at the very yeah. least I look at the newspaper and sometimes even now think three years out from the show man am I glad I don't have to go into work and pitch something yeah. about this 
And I, I think even the people who are very good at it at some of these shows like uh, Samantha Bee or Daily Show with Trevor Noah, I think it's fatiguing for those writers too. They don't want to live in this world where that's the the playing field every day for months and years at a time. And mm-hmm. Who wouldn't want to just uh, write something like, uh, let's... Uh, uh, throw watermelons off the roof and see how beautiful it looks when they hit the ground. I mean, that was a pure kind of visual anarchic television that really represented the Letterman show of the 80s along with a, a handful or many handfuls of other wonderful things. It was just so, so primal and so satisfying and so irresponsible at some level. But I remember I was talking to Dave about his influences and he said he saw a I think it was a Steve Allen show in the 60s it was done in L.A. And there ended up being some segment in the farmer's market out there that ended in an enormous food fight. And he just was <laughs> gleeful. With, oh, my God, this should not be happening on television. But look, there it is. And that's the sort of, uh, uh, I think, one of the strands that went yeah. into what he ended up doing was this shouldn't be on television. Mm-hmm. Let's just be gleeful about the fact that it is. One of, one of my favorite Letterman things is when he would talk to the pizza guy at, outside next to Ed Sullivan. Was he a pizza guy? Oh, well, uh, we had Rupert in the deli. Rupert in the deli. Yeah, Rupert G in the Hello Deli. Yeah, yeah, that was a wonderful pairing. I would I would watch. I've told Dave, I think, I would watch you talk to Rupert for hours <laughs> on end if I could. It was just this perfect uh, mismatch of these uh, Rupert kind of lacking affect and just <laughs> calmly agreeing to whatever right. and Dave just pushing weird buttons and suggesting that <laughs> yeah I, that was a, a great serendipitous thing that, uh, that rupert happened to be right there for us when we got there what was your reaction when letterman told you he was retiring i don't know if i was surprised i mean by the time he made that announcement in the spring of 2014 i think we realized uh we're somewhere in our final years. I don't know where exactly, but uh, I was okay with it because I felt like, well, I've gotten good at at doing what this show now wants, but I'm interested in seeing what else I might be able to do because by that point I had uh, co-written a book which uh, had uh, sort of opened up this new cultural uh, hidden world that I was interested in pursuing more and uh, including the documentary film which had already started up by that point it was in its early stages I had gotten more interested in performing somewhat to my surprise sharpened 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 for so long that I was now uh, absolutely not intimidated by getting up in front of people and talking and trying to be funny So I thought, I liked doing these shows where I presented these vintage film clips from these corporate musicals and talked about them. And I was feeling like, okay, there's different things here for me to pursue. And I don't know what all of it will be. And I'm sure I'll still be writing for television here and there in some form. But this feels like the right time for for this chapter to end. And we still had a year, even after he made the announcement. For a long time, we didn't know when the show was going to end. But uh, we knew we were heading toward... Uh, the final lap and it was bittersweet there's actually a fair amount of this in the documentary bathtubs over broadway which i hope you'll get to see at some point a lot of behind the scenes letterman stuff which is very rare dave 
almost never was comfortable with anything being shot backstage or in the office and so this was kind of extraordinary that we have that the end of the letterman show from the inside as part of the movie we knew okay time is growing short it still feels like the regular show until almost the last couple weeks and then it's a lot of retrospective packages and special guests and we felt like okay the, the we are really we're coming to the finish line now and that was uh three years ago may so you worked at letterman for 25 years in in what ways do you see comedy change over that time uh, a lot of it, the the political business, yeah. at least on a lot of the late night shows that we talked about, that feels like the uh, the default setting now. In a way, it certainly didn't in the early '90s. I mean, we would do occasional things about, oh, President jo- uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, haha, he threw up on the <laughs> Japanese Prime Minister, haha. But that that was kind of just one of many uh, cards you could play on, comedically on a show like that in those days. Now it seems much more so. The internet has upended so much about uh, the television business, certainly, and what kind of content gets created. Now shows have to have things that go viral, whether it's Jimmy Fallon or James Corden, and and that, I think, brings a hugely different approach to just how you produce a show and format a show and you're always looking off to this horizon called uh, viral videos and thinking we've got to get something out there that even if people don't watch the rest of the show we want them to watch this three minute segment and say oh that's fantastic and so we have that currency and I guess companies sort of know how to monetize it now it seemed like that was confusing but just the competition for anybody to watch anything now is so intense compared to I compare it to um, in the old days. You had the big three automakers, Ford, GM, Chrysler. Eh, right, American Motors, fine. But they were not part of the big three. But uh, that was the world in, in like 1965. And yeah, Volkswagen was starting to sell a few, but no one saw what was coming. In, in 1990 or whatever, you have the networks. You even have Fox. Let's say Fox is American Motors. <laughs> Uh, and yes, there were things like premium cable and so on, but nobody saw really the sea change that was coming with a pr- proliferation of cable and then the internet and just the everything is very blurry. Is it a TV show? Is it a web series? Is it uh, something that's on YouTube? And we don't quite even know what it is anymore. But I, I do know that in the mid-90s when the show, the Letterman show, started up at CBS what we would consider a not terribly good ratings figure for a particular night for that show, uh, 20 years later would have been an astonishing lightning (laughs) bolt of triumph. Oh, my God, look at all the people that watched that episode. 20 years before, it was, oh, that's kind of disappointing. Just the competition for uh, the attention of viewers has caused everything to fragment so much that... uh, I don't know how the business people do it. Maybe they don't do it. Maybe everything is slowly <laughs> failing and turning into... And we'll all just be artisanal uh, craftspeople making our own uh, funny videos on our phones and just showing them to 10 people by the by the time I'm an old man. I don't know. But yeah, it's a double-edged sword. The barriers to entry are very low now. Anybody can shoot and produce something and 
put it out to the world and actually could probably look pretty good. Mm-hmm. But how are you going to get anybody to see it if there yeah. are a million people doing stuff that's just pretty much as good as yours? Yeah. It's tough. It is, it is crazy that television still works and succeeds. Yeah. I, mean, I, I don't know how long that's going to be, but... Yeah, I don't know if network television will ever go away. I mean, we, mm-hmm. we still have Ford and General Motors and right, Chrysler, right. and they're still selling stuff. Things are always changing. But uh, mm-hmm. there are perfectly good shows that are coming out of the network pipeline. And uh, I know uh, friends of mine, Carter and Craig, they were Letterman writers, and then they went out to L.A. and worked on a couple of sitcoms and developed something called How I Met Your Mother, which is a great example of where everything goes right on the development and casting yeah. and writing. and it, So the lightning can still strike on, mm-hmm. on a good network TV show. Mm-hmm. And so 25 years of Letterman, what's it like getting back into the job market after that? Well, it is frankly a little uh, confusing. Um, I've done a few other gigs uh, in the last couple of years. I worked on Maya and Marty. NBC variety show uh, a friend and colleague from the Letterman show was involved with that and asked me if I wanted to come be a writer for that and I said well that sounds interesting and I met some terrific people there I got uh, it was a limited series they only had six episodes it was a sort of primetime variety show a lot of SNL people helping with it and contributing to it and very much Lorne Michaels uh, show machinery uh, fired up and got that running but I, I got one good solid piece on the air very nicely produced video piece I was proud of and met some people I'm still uh, in touch with socially and professionally and then that's how it works you meet somebody at one of these shows and then the next year they say hey I'm doing this other project you want to be involved I'd love to work with you again you say unless the person is horrible you say yeah (laughs) and you work on something else and you meet five new people there that you like and then and I think most people in this business do that constantly I'm a little unusual because I spent 25 years in this uh, sort of uh, biosphere where you didn't have that uh, constant uh, uh, cross fertilization with meeting people Uh, the Letterman show writing staff was went through periods where it didn't change very much so I'm meeting new people and getting wonderful new uh, gigs and opportunities out there. It's just I have a smaller network than, at age 52 than probably most people would because most people don't work at the same place for 25 <laughs> years. Well, let's see. what I did uh, Harry Connick Jr. show for a while, his daytime show. A couple of the guys I knew from Letterman were running that show, and they asked me to come over for some consulting, and I met Met some wonderful people there. Harry Connick Jr., very talented. Liked him very much. Uh, did one of the New Year's Eve shows. I did Night of Too Many Stars with John Stewart hosting. That was amusing because I had met him in 1990. I was leaving the Comedy Channel, and he was coming in. He was a young comedian. He was getting this writing job, and we had met a couple times. Then it's 27 years later, and I'm in a meeting with him and other writers, and I... Uh, make some comment he looks over at me and says well it's not like the rachel sweet show and i said wow oh, oh my god you do remember <laughs> and he said yeah i remember you oh, wow <laughs> so that's that, crazy that was fun oh so he's a very smart guy and like somebody was telling me a lot of these extremely successful uh talk show host slash entertainer slash comedians have extraordinary memories mm. able to keep 
a huge Rolodex of people and references open all the time, ready to cross-reference and pull something amazing out like that. So, so good for him. I saw him do stand-up very recently, uh-huh. and he's, he's great. Mm-hmm. I think he's coming back. He's trying to tour more, but yeah. Yeah, well, it's great to watch somebody that you feel like you can just relax because right. this is not going to be a disappointment. We're in good hands <laughs> here. Uh, so with Maya and Marty, was that show run similarly to like SNL, like SNL schedule? Uh, not so much with staying up in, okay, to the late yeah. middle of the night. Yeah, that's the gruesome part that I was wondering about also. But no, it was uh, it was fairly sedate for a few months while the show was slowly gearing up. Got a little more intense in the last few weeks before it went on the air. But uh, no, it, it, was, it was a pretty uh, genteel experience by the standards of uh, what I've heard about the, the full-blown SNL experience. Was it? Uh, what's different in doing a variety show like that rather than just like a straight sketch show? Well, for me, uh, I was coming from the Letterman side, and there was sketches, but they were not quite SNL sketches. Mm. We, we rarely had anything that went for more than like a minute. And so it was a little bit of a different muscle for me to say, I'm going to write this SNL-style sketch. I think there was a decision made, uh, we're going to keep the length of these a little shorter than SNL. But uh, some parts of the show were just walled off. Like, we know that uh, this special guest is coming in and they're going to do their own bit that they're writing with whoever, or this is going to be a music act and so on. In some ways, I think it was somewhat like SNL. There's people all jockeying to get their sketches on the show. And then uh, there was uh, like read-throughs, this big packet, and uh, very nerve-wracking to see how your sketch would do in the read-through in the room and whether Lauren would laugh or whether the stars <laughs> would laugh and so on. So so you're on the line there, but you, that's that's what you got into it for. You want to <laughs> You want to see what happens. What makes a, a good sketch for television? Um, well, there's uh, my TV history class that I teach at NYU. I show some old stuff from the 50s, like from your show of shows. And I point out on the page, this looked very nearly like nothing. It's 90% the, uh, the personality of the performers that sells this thing. So never underestimate how... Uh, a, performers are going to uh, bring you to glory or not because uh, so much depends on that like any other kind of comedy I think you've got to have surprise I don't laugh at that many things uh, I call it comedy damage because I've heard <laughs> so much and thought about so much that great jokes can be placed in front of me and I go yeah that's very good I'm not, right. I'm not surprised to see that I think that's a good punchline that's a but yeah, the best stuff is gonna hit that sweet spot where it's surprising, but it makes sense and it's well delivered and well executed, and just uh, that, like I said with Conan, there's this extra X factor. Sometimes it, it's hard to pin down what was great about this, but you just know it when you see it. Mm. What would you like to be doing next? Well, I would like to do uh, a cornucopia of different things. <laughs> I, I I do enjoy. Uh, I did kind of enjoy uh, getting to write some sketches. I was recently looking back at my Maya and Marty stuff and going, oh, this is good. I've, oddly enough, uh, gotten interested in songwriting now. Uh, mm. I don't know if we're going to talk about the documentary very much. But, we can talk about that right oh, yeah. now, actually. But uh, there are three original songs in that, which I either wrote or co-wrote. And 
I've met more music people in the last year that I'm collaborating with on different things, so I like that. And uh, like I was saying, I've kind of gotten a taste for being on stage and uh, performing and entertaining. entertaining. And I don't think I want to pursue a straight stand-up career. I've kind of come around through a weird, long, looping path sideways to it. But something in, in that realm and... Who knows what? If you've got a uh, if you've got an offer, I'll listen to it. <laughs> so earlier you mentioned your book that you co-wrote, "Everything's Coming Up Profits." That's right. Uh, which is now being uh, kind of the story of that's being told, or the story of how you came across that's being told in uh, bathtub bathtubs over Broadway. Bathtubs over Broadway. <laughs> I can't want to say bullets over Broadway. Oh yeah. Well, that uh, is uh, about the world of industrial musicals, which is a phrase <laughs> that. Uh, most people aren't really familiar with and that's entirely reasonable because this was an, a world of entertainment that the public wasn't supposed to know about musicals very much like broadway shows which were often lavishly produced with top level a-list broadway talent writing and performing in them but the audiences were private corporate audiences like if you were a mcdonald's franchise owner operator or McDonald's manager, you would go to the annual convention and you'd have some meetings and there'd be some speeches. But then, ladies and gentlemen, and then the <laughs> lights go down and it's a musical that knocks your head off because it's really, really good. But it's all about the trials and tribulations and triumphs and tragedies of being a McDonald's manager or a McDonald's <laughs> owner operator. And I found this world quite by accident working for The Letterman Show, finding record albums we could make fun of on the Dave's Record Collection segment. And uh, sometimes I would find these souvenir records from these company meetings at which a, a musical had happened. And I thought, well, this is, this is obviously perfect to make fun of on our show. This is just so wrong-headed and so <laughs> twisted and so beautifully wrong. I, we're 95% we're of the way there before you even hear the clip because it's just conceptually so crazy. And then so many of them just reeked of, oh, my God, these are not amateurs. These are these are actual serious top-level people apparently taking some sort of very good paycheck to create something magical about B.F. Goodrich or about uh, uh, general electric light bulbs or whatever. Just this... This is better than any written comedy I've ever heard of because it's so off the charts crazy and it's so real and how much of it is there. So this documentary follows me as I go down the rabbit hole of not only finding more records and now films, but tracking down and getting to know the people who wrote these things wow. and performed in them. And uh, it's full of crazy surprising beautiful hilarious music and vintage film and video but it's also got this emotional journey that i don't think people really can understand what's coming about how i end up changed by this wow. adventure that's incredible that's the industrial music i mean it's insane yeah it's 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 a high hurdle to get people to understand what you're talking right. about right the book definitely helped. I got to be on the Letterman show. Dave had me on three times as a guest uh, talking about the book and playing some samples from the records. I was on uh, Fresh Air with Terry Gross on NPR. And 
some big newspapers and magazines wrote some pieces. Definitely helped get some visibility, but it's mm-hmm. still so far off the grid of anything that most people have ever heard of. And mm-hmm. even if your uncle or your grandfather went to the B.F. Goodrich Tire Dealer musical a couple mm-hmm. times. They never knew that there were similar ones for Coca-Cola right. and Royal Typewriters and Ford Tractors and Pepsi-Cola and thousands of companies all doing these in the shadows for decades. So the the documentary, I, I lucked into meeting the perfect person to, uh, to run this movie, make this movie, a woman named Deva Huizanant, who was a Letterman editor. And so I knew she was a brilliant editor from the comedy side. She had this sixth sense about what was the right thing to do for a comedy piece. And then it widened up. It, it widened out. It wasn't just comedy anymore. It was history and all the, the varieties of human experience and drama and emotion and all that. But she uh, directed this thing and edited it. And we premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival this past uh, April. Uh, a huge, triumphant, beautiful day. Deva, the director, then won Best New Documentary Director Award, which was a great feather in her cap. And since then, we've taken it on the road to Toronto and Nashville. I'm going to Washington, D.C. now tomorrow for AFI Docs and then going to Nantucket. Oh, wow. So uh, the the festival circuit for a while. And it's uh, after all these years of oh the documentary yes theoretically it's happening <laughs> oh it's coming slowly coming. it's actually done and it is better than I could have imagined I'm not a film person mm-hmm. I don't think about how to make films but I'm very much in awe of brilliant film people who can actually mm-hmm. as 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 they say land the plane she she said when we were getting some interest from like investors and so on they want to know that this film is being run by somebody who can land the plane because mm. plenty of great ideas start and then never get finished. And mm-hmm. this one finished in a uh, great style and just people are bowled mm-hmm. over by it. So uh, I hope that uh, we'll be uh, going on to the wider releases and distribution and so on. And uh, that's uh, that's coming up at, at some point. But uh, right now it's on the festival circuit. That's awesome. I look forward to seeing it eventually. Bathtubsoverbroadway.com. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Are we able to like plug our own stuff in here? Yeah, I'll, I'll, do okay. my, my, I'll do my little sketch pitch, and then we'll go back. Yeah, all right. Plugs. Very good. Uh, so we're going to wrap up with my sketch idea. Okay. Um, Hit me. This one's uh, half-baked, so you'll okay. love it. <laughs> I love the title. <laughs> um, so it's a late-night show. Um, where the host just asks famous guests for money. Uh-huh. So it's basically so... Like, Bradley Cooper comes out and the host says, Bradley, we're going to talk about your new movie, but first, we all know you had a great year this year, uh-huh. uh, and I think it'd be great if you gave me $100. Mm-hmm. And then the whole crowd starts, you know, like in late night shows, and he says something like, I think it'd be great if you did this, and the uh-huh. crowd starts, just so the crowd's like on his side, and so uh, that's kind of what I have, but mm-hmm. basically, yeah. Uh, I like the overt naked greed of right. it. I, I think there's something very amusing about, look course we want to talk about your your great artistic measures and look you got to help out daddy daddy needs to, <laughs> daddy needs to pay his car payment so what are we going to do what are we going to do i know you got it come on yeah you'd have to start thinking of variations about like uh all right how about this uh right. we'll make a bet and if i win i'll pay you five dollars but if you but uh, no if i lose i'll pay you five dollars but if you lose you pay me a thousand dollars or uh 
I found out, uh, I looked on the internet and I found a very embarrassing picture of you from 1998. <laughs> uh, I'd be happy to just slip this back into the manila envelope and shred it <laughs> if you could see your way clear to uh, maybe uh, slipping me a couple of hundred dollar yeah. bills or something during the commercial break. Uh, there were, you'd probably want d- different uh, fun variations on it, but there mm-hmm. is... But it's a weird area also because uh, greed is is funny for a while. I don't know if it would sustain or whether it has to be a, like mm. a competition. Like there's there's a fair chance that uh, you you don't have to pay the host and he has to do something that he doesn't want to do. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. It, not always just in one not direction. Always, yeah, because yeah. both ways. Yeah. Yeah, and maybe for the. To make it palatable, uh, more so for an audience, would you say, "All right, uh, whatever you give me, I'm giving half to charity, or I'm going to give <laughs> yeah. everybody in the audience a five dollar bill if you <laughs> yeah. cough up a thousand dollars?" Yeah, I like that. Uh, yeah, yeah, there are, and presumably people coming on this show know what's coming, right? And right. Maybe they've worked out ahead of time some fun back and forth that gets you to some surprising conclusion <laughs> that comedically satisfying right but uh yeah there is uh, because the whole thing about industrial musicals the book is called everything's coming up <laughs> a pretty seamless transition right. to it. <laughs> everything's coming up profits which is a wonderful combination of uh, a broadway reference and the naked admission that we're in this to make money right. everything's coming up profits actually is the title of a uh, a rather uh, low-end little industrial show done for a floor tile company wow. <laughs> in 1969, I think it was. And just because, uh, as an aside about how rare these things are, this record collection I've managed to put together, uh, the Everything's Coming Up Profits floor tile show, it is the only known copy in the world wow. of this record. And I have a, quite a few that are either like that or there's two or three known copies in the world. These are pressed in excruciatingly limited quantities and then i assume most of them immediately thrown away so the rest of my life i'll be finding rarities like that but yeah i do think there's something refreshing in in just being upfront about look we all know why we're here yes we want to have fun we want to talk about jokes but we're all here because of money (laughs) so done right and artfully with variations there may be something to that yeah cool so Everything's coming up profits. You can get on Amazon. That seems to be the way to, to get it now, yes. Uh, everything's coming up profits. The golden age of industrial musicals. Myself and my uh, friend Sport Murphy, a very funny uh, genius writer and artist, uh, put that book together. I'm very happy with it. Everything's coming up profits reminds me of that Simpsons joke where with Millhouse. Everything's coming up Millhouse. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. that's a, a eternally appealing formula, I think, once... <laughs> Everything's Coming Up Roses yeah. became a famous song. There are a thousand variations on that. Uh, and then Bathtubs Over Broadway's on the festival circuit. That's right. Uh, when, when do you go to Nantucket? Nantucket, uh, we're screening... Uh, well, I don't know when you're, when you're going to put it. This will be out like a week or two. All right, well, we're... Uh, depending on when you put it out, it may have already gone past. Uh, I think our screenings are the 21st and 23rd of okay. June. And we've got... Uh, uh, a one-shot deal in the Hamptons in July 21st, hosted by Alec Baldwin. Whoa! <laughs> he saw the movie at some point and was enthralled by it, I must say. He was very 
uh, charmingly excited yeah. and wanted to meet me and have me on his radio show. Oh. So and then he said, "Oh, are you guys in the uh, Hampton Film Festival?" And, <laughs> and suddenly now we're gonna we're gonna go out there and and uh, it'll be good to have him out there and hosting that. And then I think I'm going to Martha's Vineyard for a day at the end of July. Nice. All right. Well, thanks for coming on the show. All right. Thanks for listening to this episode of On Comedy Writing. I want to thank Nick Doss for supplying the sweet tunes, Zachary Glassman for giving us the awesome logo, and Boardwalk Audio for hosting us. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, and like and follow On Comedy Writing on Facebook and Twitter. See you next week. Audio podcast. For more information and shows, visit boardwalkaudio.com. Don't forget to rate and subscribe now.